0: You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's Word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still. Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages, so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, August the 28th, episode number 131, Jesus Turned Water into Wine, John 2, one through eleven. In our last study we talked about a topic that isn't well liked nor popular in our age. We talked about the judgment. The Bible tells us we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're told after death comes the judgment. We talked about what the judgment is, what it includes, and then we focused on being ready for the judgment. How about you, my friends? Are you ready for the judgment today? We hope this episode helps people get ready for that great day that is coming. In today's episode we discussed The first miracle ever recorded in Christ's ministry. We look at the setting very closely, pull several things out of Jewish culture. There are several amazing things wrapped up in what seems like only one miracle, but many things took place in this one event. We examine Mary, the water pots, and what had to happen to the water in order for it to turn into wine. We also dig into a few more things throughout this very interesting, miraculous happening. We're certain you will get something out of this today. Now for the lesson and the teaching of God's Word. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you, Jesus, that there's people listening to a Bible study podcast, and I am so glad just thinking about our study that we're going to do today. This is a powerful portion of scripture, and it's hard to believe that we're already entering
0: chapter two of the Gospel of John. Did you say already? At this point, we should easily finish the whole book by June 2047. Hey, get real. (laughs) I think that is a little realistic. Well, don't tell me that we have to go through this stuff already again. Look, I'm not saying you're dragging this study out, but, you know, I do wonder if a a snail might fly past you at some point. Hey, speaking
1: of a snail, (laughs) did you hear about the snail who got whipped by two turtles, didn't you? No, I don't think I have. Well, somebody asked the snail what happened, and he said it all happened so fast he didn't have a clue what took place. (laughs) Oh, brother, what does this have to do with today's episode? Well, I'm just thinking if I go much faster, there will be people who won't remember anything of this book study because it happened so fast. Well, you need to work on your punch lines. (laughs) Well, you need to work on your patience, but I'm not going to mention that.
0: Well, are we fixing to get into throwing things at each other or something?
1: No, but we're fixing to get into John 2. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11, and we'll get started.
0: Man, that's the first time I've seen you hurrying into one of these studies in a while.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, just sit back, buckle up, and hold on. All right. John 2 and 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doeth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him." We're going to anchor down on verse 1 and 2 for just a moment where it talks about the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. For some reason, John includes the timing of this wedding, and he says it was on the third day. This was the third day from what? It makes you wonder why John left chapter 1 in his description of the word and goes right into a wedding. Is there any rhyme or reason that caused him to take this approach? I'm not really sure, but from the time that John the Baptist was questioned by the Sanhedrin about being the Messiah, this makes exactly one week later.
0: Now, how do you know that?
1: Well, look at the timeline from John 1 and 19 all the way down to John 2 and 1. All right, let's say John 1 and 19 happened on a Monday when the Sanhedrin came and they questioned John. Then verse 29 would have happened on a Tuesday. Then verse 35 would have taken place on a Wednesday, and verse 43 would have been on a Thursday. If all of this holds true, then three days later would be a Sunday.
0: So you think this wedding happened on a Sunday?
1: No, I have no clue what the first day was. Therefore, I don't know what day this marriage took place. I just took one day at random and then went through the days and laid them out for us. But let me show you quickly what I'm talking about here in scriptures. John 1 and 19, and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Then he dropped down to 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Verse 35, again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, said, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 43 says, The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. So we have four days in succession right there, and then John 2 and 1 starts off by saying and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So whatever time frame we're looking at, whether it was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it doesn't matter altogether, but whatever day it was they came to John, one week from that time there was a wedding that took place. I just took one random day and laid those days out. In chapter 1, John explained the identity of the word. And then in chapter 2, he begins by presenting the signs,
0: the wonders, and the miracles that point to Jesus as being the Messiah. Do you know what I find interesting? What's that? Right after John details the conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel, they go to a wedding in Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown.
1: That is true. Here, let me, let me look this up. I think it's near the end of John. Yeah, in John 21, uh, right here, verse 2. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. So, yeah, he was definitely from Cana. And there's your biblical proof in John 21. Cana was located somewhere around nine miles north of Nazareth.
0: John recorded that even the mother of Jesus was there, along with Jesus and his disciples who had already been called to the marriage.
1: That's true. And this was most likely a reference to a marriage festival, which would have had several different forms of entertainment within the whole process. Now, how do you know that? Well, the reason I say this is because John used a Greek word, gamos, for marriage here. This word can be interpreted as an actual wedding and as a festive ceremony that has a banquet with it. This word is used 16 times in the New Testament, and it's translated as marriage nine times and as wedding seven
0: times. Have you ever noticed that John never refers to Mary by her given name, but always calls her the mother of Jesus? You know, I have noticed that, and I think it's pretty
1: amazing. Mary was present, and then Jesus was specifically called to the event. So I personally believe that this was probably a family member's wedding or at least a good friend
0: of the family who was getting married. John says that Jesus' disciples were bitten as well. But so far, all the disciples that have been named who are following Jesus is Andrew, maybe Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. That's true, but it only makes sense to
1: believe that John the Beloved was also among them, and this is how we get this firsthand knowledge of what's happening. So there may have been five or six disciples that we know of that could be with him at this point. As we've already studied in the first chapter, there were two disciples that left following John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Andrew was called by name, and the other disciple wasn't named, but most likely it was John. Jesus called these disciples, and then he was called to a marriage called is the greek word kaleo kaleo can mean called bidden summoned or even to be invited the word john uses for disciples is mathetes mathetes means a follower a believer a pupil or a student somebody who's being tutored by someone above them
0: well, which definition do you think fits jesus's disciples the best
1: Well, I believe that we'll see the answer to that as we go throughout this book. I think you'll see at times that they barely make a good pupil or student. They're always someone who's being tutored. But as it gets to the end of Jesus's life, I think you'll begin to see them more as a follower and a true believer. John 2 and 3 says, and they wanted wine. The mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. When it says they wanted wine, John used the Greek word hystero. Hysteria is interpreted as to give out, to run out, to be deficient, to be in need of something, or to lack something. In other words, they were completely out of wine. That's right. Can you (laughs) imagine throwing a big feast and then running out of drinks? This is the pressure that the host of this wedding supper were facing. And Jewish marriage festivals were known to last for around a week or so. Let me read you a couple of examples that show this. Genesis 29 and 27, we find Laban telling Jacob, Fulfill her week. And we will give thee this also for the service, which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. So it says, fulfill her week, give her this week of celebration, and then we'll move on. Judges 14 and 15. This is when Samson was getting married. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. So we see that it goes on a whole week. <laughs>
0: My goodness, I can't imagine going to a wedding that lasted a whole week.
1: Me either. But I want to point out a few things concerning the wine right here. Now, this is going to be some pretty technical stuff about what the Bible tells us. But I want to run through some of this where you got a good mindset of what's going on around in the culture of the Jews here. Noah was the first man that was ever mentioned to plant a vineyard. You find that in Genesis 9 and 20 through 22. The grapes would be brought in baskets from the vineyard to the wine press, which was either a natural flat rock or a rock that had been flat. You see mentions of this in Isaiah 5 and 2, Isaiah 16 and 10, and Jeremiah 48 and 33. The grapes were spread out on the rock and then were trodden by foot so that the juice would flow down to a vat hewn at the foot of the pressing ground. It would settle all night and then be collected into jars, which would be closed up with clay stoppers. The skins of the grapes, which had been
0: left behind after the first
1: pressing, would then be pressed again in order to extract the remaining juice.
0: I remember hearing that grapes weren't the only fruit wine could be made
1: from. That's true. The Jews made wine from dates and pomegranates, apples, several other kinds of fruit. And even this, this is what's really strange. They could make wine from some of the grain. The New Testament tells us that wine was sometimes mixed with other things, such as gall or vinegar. We see that Matthew twenty-seven and thirty-four, myrrh was mingled with it. Mark fifteen twenty-three, and sometimes it would be mingled with oil for medicinal purposes in Luke ten and thirty-four. The Bible details how wine played an important role in the ancient Near East. That's true. It was used in daily and monthly sacrifices. It was used in many holy days. You can see that in Exodus 29 and 40, Numbers 28 and 14, and Numbers 15 and 5. The law of the Nazarites forbade the consumption of wine. Numbers 6 and 3, Judges 13 and 4 tells us that. We know that the Rechabites willingly refrained from drinking wine in Jeremiah 35 and 2. The officiating priest also refrained from drinking wine in Leviticus 10 and 9 and Ezekiel 44 and 21. Wine was a lot of times looked at as a symbol of prosperity and fertility. First Kings 4 and 25 and Second Kings 18 and 31 give you a glimpse into that. Grapes were one of the seven fruits that the promised land contained, according to Deuteronomy 7 and 13. Important people were greeted with bread and wine like Abraham when Melchizedek went out to meet him in Genesis 14 and 18. The Bible is strongly against intoxication. Isaiah 22 and 12 and 13, Isaiah 28 and 1, Hosea 3 and 1, all of those tell us that it's not good to drink strong drink or wine. Wine was used in medicine, and it was also an everyday beverage for kings. Special ministers were appointed to supply it. Genesis 40 and 2 tells of one case, and Nehemiah 2 and 1 in another place. I guess I didn't
0: realize the Bible gave that much information about wine.
1: It does that and even more. I'm actually cutting it short from what all it does say. I just wanted to give you an idea that wine played a huge role in the culture around the Jewish community. Wow. Now that you know how important wine was, now you see how important it was that they have it at this feast. For them to run out, this was going to be very embarrassing and humiliating. In verse 4, Jesus says unto his mother, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come.
0: Mary told Jesus that the host had run out of wine, which to me, I believe, was a request for help. True, but I don't believe that this should be seen as if she was commanding him to do something. No. Do you think Mary was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle right there?
1: You know, in one way, it kind of makes sense, but to me, it's a little bit of nonsense because the Bible is clear in telling us that this was the first or the beginning of miracles that Jesus did.
0: Yeah. Well, when Jesus said his hour was not yet come, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, some people say that it was not yet time for him to begin his ministry. I don't quite go with that because it obviously looks like his ministry started here. But others say that this wasn't supposed to be the first miracle he performed. Here's the thing. How did they know that? How did they know this wasn't supposed to be the first miracle? Some people believe that it was just kind of forced upon him by his mother, Mary. I don't think any of these theories hold up under scrutiny, though. So what do you believe about this? Well, to me, the people who believe those other beliefs need to explain what's meant by John 7 and 6 and John 7 and 30 because they said the same thing much later in, in Jesus' ministry. John 7 and 6, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come, John 7 and 30. So I believe that this time that had not yet come has something to do with his death or either the coming of the kingdom of God. I
0: could see that possibility, the, the hour of his death or the hour of the kingdom is brought forth.
1: Going into verse 5, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. For Mary to be telling the servants what to do, I believe that she must have some kind of a part in this marriage ceremony or in the wedding somehow. You think so? Well, to me, this is even greater proof that this was the marriage of someone that they knew well, whether a family member or friend. Why do you seem so set on that idea? Well, how many people do you know that get invited to a wedding and then all of a sudden they're trying to boss everybody around? (laughs) You
0: obviously don't know some of the people I've met.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Either way, and changing the subject now, I find it interesting that John has depicted Jesus as the word and then Mary tells the servants whatsoever he says, do it. I love that part. To me, this reinforces the power of the fact that he is the word. Whatever he says ought to be done. That's right. The word John uses for do here, whatsoever he saith, do it. This is the Greek word hadopoio. Now, that's a hard word to say, but it literally means to make a path. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Make a path if you have to. She was telling him it didn't matter if they had to go down to the river and draw water. If they had to cut a path to the water, go ahead and do whatever he says.
0: Wow. Now, that really opens up an amazing picture in my mind right there. I'd like to ask you a question if you have the time for it. Well, technically, you just asked me a question. (laughs) Well, I have another one for you, mister.
1: Is it time for the question of the day already? Yeah, go ahead. I'm just
0: messing around. (laughs) Okay. Do you believe Jesus had ever used his miracle working power before this? I honestly don't know how to feel
1: concerned in this altogether. I've got a very strong opinion. I know some people believe that Jesus performed all kinds of miracles before this, but this was his first recorded miracle. Is that possible? I don't buy it, but I do notice the fact that Mary obviously believed Jesus could do something about this situation.
0: Well, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, how how does she know?
1: Well, she may have been basing it all on what the angel told her and Joseph before Jesus was born. Other people believe that she had seen him do other miracles, and that's why she believed that. I'm not so sure about that, but it seems that she did know that he could do something. Now, I want to bring up something that I think some people may find interesting. Mary's command at the wedding of Cana in John 2 and 5, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. To me, that sounds very similar to what Pharaoh commanded concerning Joseph in Genesis 41 and 55. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go unto Joseph, and what he saith to you, do. The command was, do whatever he says. (laughs) I don't guess I would have ever connected Mary with Pharaoh. Yeah, that is one of those strange tidbits of information that you just don't put together. But the saying is very much the same. And what's interesting is Joseph was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. So I believe there's a very strong connection there. Going into verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. To me, this is one of those portions of Scripture that has so much to tell us that it's hard to comprehend the fullness of everything that went on. So allow me to point out several things here. I don't want to just take too much time here, but I want to anchor down on a few things. Number one, water is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, which is why it's
0: known as H2O. (laughs) Oh, great. Last week, you gave us an English lesson. This week, it's science. Well, Jesus took and he remixed those two
1: elements, though, and he also added some carbon with it. He added several other things, such as tannin and tartaric acid, malic acid, and citric acid. Jesus didn't just sneak some red food coloring into the water and acted like it was wine and said, hey, come over here. He didn't do that when no one was looking, and he tried to fool them.
0: Okay, so what point are you trying to drive home? I figure everyone listening knows this was an amazing miracle.
1: Yeah, but not only was this an amazing miracle, but Jesus literally sped up the aging process and turned seconds into years as far as the aging of the wine is concerned. Wow! The miracle that Jesus performed here was one of radical transformation.
0: Only the God who created everything from nothing could take water and turn it into wine. I fully believe that. And not only was God able to do this back in Jesus' day, but God still performs miracles of transformation today. Hold on, I believe I finally got it. For water to be turned into wine, there had to be a drastic change take place in the water.
1: Yes, and it's interesting to me that our bodies are supposed to be somewhere in the vicinity of 55 to 70% water. It isn't by chance that in the New Testament, the Holy Ghost is referred to as wine. I believe Jesus would still like to turn the water into wine in our lives. Amen. I believe that. Have
0: you ever wondered how the servants would have fulfilled Jesus's command? Well, not really, but they didn't have running water nor water hoses back then, so it probably wasn't the easiest thing to do. That's true. So would they have carried the water pots down to a well or to
1: a river? I mean, can you imagine them filling them up and lugging them back to the wedding? A firkin is the Greek word metrete. Metrote roughly equates to a measure. Now, a measure was understood as 9 or 10 gallons. These water pots held 2 or 3 firkins apiece. So, just for all of those brainiacs and math lovers out there, this means that they would hold between 18 to 30 gallons of water. This would be anywhere from 144 to 240 pounds of water per water pot. If you just put that right in the middle, you're talking about around 192 pounds of fluid per container. Then add the weight of the vessels. These were stone vessels. We see that this wouldn't have been an
0: easy task. You know, two people couldn't carry such a heavy sloshing container with this much weight in it. That's true. So most likely, they filled the
1: water pots by going with buckets and carrying buckets of water or small pots back and forth from some kind of a water source. Well, they would have done that over and over again until the pots were full. Yes, and in other words, it was not easy getting them pots filled. You know, the Lord will at times give us a task that's kind of hard or difficult to do, but we know that he'll not put on us more than that which we're able to bear. The miracle Jesus performed was not one of multiplication, but of transformation.
0: Well, I believe he's still in the business of transforming lives today as well as back then.
1: Yes, he is. These water pots were for the Jews' ceremonial washing before they entered any religious activity. I know some people probably wonder, well, what's the water pots for? Well, they were there for people to wash before entering. John 3 and 25, then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. Mark 7, verses 3 and 4, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands oft, eat not holding the tradition of the elders and when they come from the market except they wash they eat not and many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables what a lot of people don't know is that the jews had six whole tractates in their mishnah concerning the proper way to wash their own hands
0: Boy, you want to talk about people getting technical.
1: Yeah, well, depending on what you were about to do, you would wash your hands and your forearms in different manners. Weddings were religious rituals, and they were entertainment events, so there had to be a lot of washing to be done. Marriage was definitely a religious activity, so we know that this is why those water pots were here.
0: So this is where those stone pots came from. Everyone had washed their hands in this water before entering the building. You're right, and that tells us a couple more things.
1: (laughs) The water within these pots would not have been very clean or pure either because that's what they washed their hands off into. Now, because of all the sloshing and the washing of their hands, the vessels were no longer full. The vessels would have been losing water. As they run it up their arm and washed it in their hands, water would have spilled out on the ground and would have remained somewhat on
0: their hands and forearms. Jesus had the servants fill those vessels that day. And then I guess once the vessels were completely filled, then he performed this miracle.
1: That's exactly right. Now, I want you to keep in the back of your mind. This is filthy water down at the bottom, or at least mixed in with the clean water they just put in. Let's go into verse 7, and we'll look a little deeper. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Right here, Jesus manifested his glory. As a matter of fact, verse 11 even says that. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. He manifested his glory by changing the quality of the substance brought to him. He didn't change the quantity of the substance. He could have made more water, but yet he did not. He had them fill it up and then he changed it. Get this. I believe this is what the Lord's trying to show us here. The amount of water that was transformed depended on the amount that the servants brought to him. If they had brought him less water, there would have been less transformed into wine. Do you want to know why we don't see more transformation in our lives today? It may be that we haven't given Jesus enough of us to transform.
0: You know, that's true. For he'll only transform what we bring to him.
1: Yes, he will. The servants filled those water pots to the brim. Now, this is a Greek word, aneklesia. Now, aneklesia is a form of the root word ano. Ano means high up, indicating it would have been near the top of a vessel. Jesus can change a million gallons just as easily as he can one drop. If he can change one drop of water into a drop of wine, then he can change a million gallons of water into a million gallons of wine.
0: If Jesus can change water into
1: wine, he can change your problems too. Amen. This brings me to another thing I want to tell you about. According to Jewish gematria, six is the number of man. You see this backed up in Revelation 13 when it's talking about 666 and the mark of the beast being the number of man. You see it in Genesis 1 where man was created on the sixth day. These six water pots symbolize man. These water pots were filled with filth and uncleanness. That's just like our lives were before we came to Christ. We were filthy and unclean just like the water pots. We were impure and basically empty. The storyline tells us that Jesus will not only fill you, but he will also change your life.
0: Tell our audience how Jesus would do this.
1: He wants to fill you with him, and then he wants to fill you with his spirit. Yeah.
0: You know, by Jesus turning water into wine, we can see his purpose shining through in his first miracle.
1: Another thing we need to mention here is that these water pots were made of stone. The Jews used stone water pots because they believed that stone would not retain ritual impurity. This
0: means that they didn't believe that uncleanness could be conveyed through stone. I tell you, I believe that could be proven by how water runs through streams or rivers, rushing over rocks and stones. It's pure to drink. The stones cleanse the water, purifying it. That's right.
1: Now, get this. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. and He cleanses us from our impurities. He can take on him our impurities, and it can never be conveyed unto him, nor does he retain any of the uncleanness he carries of ours.
0: Oh, thank God. Once again, we can see more of how we should see Jesus shining forth in this story. That's right. He came as the rock from the wilderness to bring us water,
1: the waters of the Spirit. And he came to turn it into wine, which symbolizes the Holy Ghost. He cleanses us from our impurities as the rock of our salvation. Let's move into verse 8. We're needing a hurry. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. Jesus tells them to draw some of the water out of the water pots, and then they carried some of it to the governor of the feast. And to me, this shows that the servants were obedient all the way through this. But it also shows me something even greater than that. These servants knew that if they brought the governor something foolish or something bad, it would look terrible on them.
0: Well, they completely trusted Jesus, and they had to be obedient to just do what he said amen when they drew the water out they could see that it was no longer water but wine
1: they knew that the contents of the water pots were water because they are the ones who filled them
0: (laughs) yeah you know when they dipped in and drew out wine i guarantee you they were shocked and amazed to me it seemed like they should have been made believers instantly i believe they
1: probably were the governor is the greek architriklinos The architrachlinos means the head steward over everything. He's the man over the whole wedding. It can also be defined as the toastmaster, the one who presents the wine to everyone. So let's jump into verse 9 and 10 and look at what it says right here. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doeth set forth good wine. And then when men have well drunk. Than that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. There's several things we could cover here, but I want to hit upon the most necessary items.
0: Hey, before you get started, we have been reading of the governor of the feast. But now we're seeing someone who is referred to as the ruler. Is there some kind of Roman leader at this feast too?
1: No, I sincerely doubt that because this is a Jewish wedding. But the ruler of the feast, if you go and look in the Greek, the ruler of the feast is the same word that's used for the governor of the feast. So this isn't a different person here. It's the same guy. Okay. He tasted the wine that had previously been water. He didn't know where it came from, but the servants did.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine how surprised they were and how excited they were when they heard what he had to say about the wine?
1: Tasted is a Greek word, euomei. Uome means to partake of, to experience, or take a taste of. After he partook of this water that was made into wine, he called the bridegroom over to him, and he commended him for saving the best until the last. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the governor says that the other wine was inferior to this wine.
0: That sounds just like my Lord. Everything he does, he does it perfectly.
1: (laughs) Yes, he does. All right, let's look at verse 11, and then we'll get this thing closed. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. To me, this verse settles our earlier questions regarding whether Jesus had ever performed any miracles before this or that this could be just the first recorded miracle.
0: You know, John declared that this was not only the first miracle Jesus performed, but it was the beginning of miracles. Yes,
1: and that certainly implies that there's more miracles to come after this. We're told that Jesus
0: manifested forth his glory here. Is this only speaking of the miracle of turning the water into wine?
1: I think that's what most people see here, but let let me point out a few things. Not only did he turn the water into wine, we see his lordship over creation in this miracle. He created water. He can turn it into whatever he wants it to. (laughs) To me, that strongly points us to the conclusion he is the creator. If someone has power over a certain element, we recognize their supremacy over it. For someone to take creation and rearrange it, change it, do whatever they want to with it, that speaks loudly of that person's ability, but also of that person's identity. Well, there should have been no doubt about the ability of Jesus then. When it says that Jesus manifested forth his glory, manifested is the Greek word phanerou. Phanerou means to reveal or make clearly known. Now, glory is the usual Greek word doxa, and it could be reworded and said like this. Jesus showed his greatness and splendor by performing this miracle.
0: It was because his glory was manifested through the miracle the disciples believed on him.
1: Now, we've already been told that these men believed on him before this point. They believed in him. They believed on him. Is this only a reiteration of what's already been said, or was this a reinforcement of the faith that they had already placed in him?
0: Could it be saying that it wasn't until this sign was done that they truly believed? Well, this is the same word that John had already
1: used for their belief in Christ. So it seems odd to me that he would make the implication that they were just now believing in him as the Messiah by using the same word. So that makes more questions rise. Had doubt already crept into their hearts? Had their faith grown weak so quickly along the way?
0: Well, I believe that this miracle strengthened the faith they already had placed in him.
1: Yeah, to me, this was probably a confirmation of faith to those who had already believed. Belief is the Greek word pistuo. Now, pistouio is best defined as the absolute transference of trust from oneself to another. Now, think about that. Instead of me trusting in me, I'm going to trust in someone else completely. That means to put your trust in Christ is to no longer trust in yourself. I think it's worth noting that the word John used that's translated as miracles here is samayon. Now, samayon is better interpreted as signs. Believe it or not, but this word seems like a lesser word in our English language. It sounds better when you talk about a miracle rather than a sign. But in the Greek, it holds better with the overall context that it's a sign. All right, these were not miracles that he was performing as if he was here on tour just trying to show people what he can do, doing shows everywhere he went. These were signs to the believers that he was the fulfillment of the Messiah who was to come. There have been miracles performed throughout the years by other people. The point we should notice is that none of those who performed the signs back then were the Messiah. These were signs that were to convince those who were looking for the Messiah that he was here and his name is Jesus. Hey,
0: I really like that. Jesus came with the power to do everything that was needed. But salvation is what man needs. And that's what he brought. Good lesson today, Brother Donnie. We've got time for a question here, and we've got a good one, I think. All right, let's hear it. Okay, here's a question. It says, I hear holiness ministers throw off on other ministries like Joel Osteen, Rod Parsley, Kenneth Copeland, Preflo Dollar, but it appears that they are doing good. Can't God use these people too?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the first response I'm going to say is, well, sure he can. Absolutely. I personally think he would rather use a donkey or a rooster to get his will done than those men that you listed, but he can use them if he decides to. Here's the thing. The donkey and the rooster would come closer to being fit to be used of God more than those people that you mentioned. Okay, I know that may be strong and you may not like that, but I'm trying to tell you the truth right here. I'm trying to speak the truth in love as the Bible tells us to do. Joel Osteen would not name a sin if his life depended on it osteen is a motivational speaker at best kenneth copeland is just a flat-out devil he teaches false doctrines he's a hateful old man he'll cuss you out if you get in his way and then speak in tongues the next breath all of these ministries that you mentioned would cease tomorrow if their funding was to be cut drastically they're hypocrites they're showboats they're lovers of money they're greedy they're out for personal gain But can God use these men? Yes, because God can do anything he wills or purposes. Does that mean that people that are saying they're getting saved at these meetings are truly getting saved? Maybe some of them. I don't know how many people have been converted under these ministries, but I will say this. If they truly get saved, they will not follow them men very long because they'll see through their hypocritical ways very quickly. Can God use them? Yes. But does God approve of these men? Absolutely not. For though they might do a few things that are seemingly good, they do an awful lot of bad too. Here's the thing I would like to know. What good are they doing? Really, what are they doing? Every once in a while, they'll say something about Jesus. They'll make a point about the Bible that's pretty decent. But their whole goal is to strip you of your funds and get you to send them money and to drive around in nice cars and have airplanes and helicopters of their own. Personally, I don't believe in any of them. Don't be deceived by their religious drivel that they're spewing out on the airwaves. Turn these false prophets off and listen to some real men of God.
0: Amen. All right. Remember, folks, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email. At DK Ministries 1977 at yahoo.com. That's DK Ministries 1977 at yahoo.com. If you have a question that you're concerned with, send it to us. We'll give you a biblical answer. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come
1: back next Friday, September the 1st, for special edition number 97, Things That Displeased the Lord.
0: But for me, this I know, really changed my heart all around, put my feet back on the ground, got along. And now for heaven, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go to that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place I can't go there by God's grace Never seen it, but I know I want to go